Bill, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today, man. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Happy to, happy to talk with you. Yeah, for sure. So for people who aren't familiar with your work and what you've been doing, could you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I am a prehistoric uh, and experimental archaeologist by training. Um, I have a PhD in archaeology and anthropology and have spent my entire career studying ancestral uh, technologies and ancestral approaches to food and diet. And more recently, um, have become a trained chef. So my wife and I, I have um, have launched uh, a business called the Modern Stuff Kitchen, which is a storefront where we put all the work, uh, the research that I've done for well for decades, into practice and create the most nourishing food possible for the community. And also have a nonprofit called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is the focus uh, where we do all of our research, teaching, outreach, and education. And what I found, and and I think this is what um, is hopefully going to be most interesting to everybody listening to this is that for three and a half million years worth of technology, technological innovation, our ancestors, um, our ancestors were engaged in, and and for that entirety of that time, almost all of the technologies created have something to do with food, getting food, processing food, uh, cooking food, redistributing food, whatever, storing food, and. Now, if you really think about it, all the Albert Einsteins of our of our past, the, you know, the most brilliant minds creating innovation for three and a half million years were solely focused on doing things to food before it goes into our mouths. Um, there's something important about that. There's something we need to pay attention to because it, it's those technologies that actually created the diets that actually created humans and fed us in, in ways that allowed our brains and our bodies and our populations to grow in the healthiest, most amazing ways. And to me, um, I, I, we, we need to really understand what those innovations were and what our diets were like in order to feed these bodies that we have now. Because the reality is we're living in Stone Age bodies. The bodies we have now were created 300,000 years ago, but we're trying to nourish these bodies with this crazy new weird modern food system and something isn't right. I completely agree with everything you've said. It makes me think back to the episode we did with Dr. Stefan Hussey a while back. Uh, just the overall importance of starting from the beginning, because as you said, humanity did not just kind of fall down and develop in the past 30, 40 years. It's been thousands and thousands of years in the making. So our genes are used to living as we have for thousands of years. We're used to being active people, eating natural, unprocessed, cleaner foods. And we now have a little bit of a mismatch, I'll say, for lack of a better way to put it, in our lifestyle now compared to where we were in the past. Uh, and obviously optimizing that uh, mismatch is a critical component to optimizing overall health and well-being, right? Uh, ancestrally speaking, there's archeological evidence to suggest that our ancestors used long bows for hunting that had a 120 pound draw weight on them. And I look at the people walking up and down the street these days, and I don't think many people could pull 120 pounds back, let alone breathe and aim for, you know, eight to 10 seconds and line it up perfectly. So it is truly amazing how far we've almost de-evolved as a society uh, in result of the technological gains that we have made in other uh, fronts, so to speak. You know, you, you mentioned a, 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 an interesting point there, a, a lot of them, but one of them I want to, I want to touch on real quick is the uh, the idea you say the unprocessed food <clears throat> because that's really I think the the anchor the foundation to all the, all the work that I'm doing now 
You know, about 15 years ago, I was I was teaching. I used to teach at Washington College here in, in Chestertown, Maryland, and I was teaching two class, teaching a bunch of classes. But this one semester, I was teaching a class that had uh, that was uh, you know about our ancestral past, it was an archaeology class, and I was also teaching a, a food class, and it had to do with modern modern foodways. And it just so happened this one semester, I had the same student in both classes. So this one this one student, she was in my archaeology class and also in my modern food class. And I said the word food processing probably a million times or the term food processing in both classes. And a few weeks into the semester, she stopped me. She's like, Dr. Schiller, Dr. Schiller, wait, I, I don't understand. You know, um, you say food processing in this modern food class and it looks like you're ready to kill somebody. And you say food processing in this archaeology class and it's like, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Like, I, I don't understand what's the difference. And I said, I, I don't know. I said, I know you're right. I, I, I talk about it here and I'm, I'm happy with it. And it's a wonderful thing. And I talk about it here and it's like the devil. I don't understand. Let me think about it. And I, and I thought about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And in fact, that one question from that student helped define my, my work and my research for the next 15 years. And actually also the, the foundation for, for the book that we'll talk about later. Um, and he, he, here's what I've come up with. Food processing in the past, all those technological innovations for three and a half, almost three and a half million years, we're focused on doing three things, making foods safe, making foods nutrient dense and making the nutrients in those foods bioavailable. In other words, making that food as nourishing as possible for our bodies before we even put it into our mouths. Food processing today is often at the expense of safety, nutrient density and bioavailability. It's, you know, the, the goals of most food processing today is making somebody else a heck of a lot of money. You know, uniformity and, sh and, and shipping and shelf life and all of that. And in the past, even though the food processing helped improve and sometimes helped improve flavor and storability and all these other wonderful things, the focus of it was on making food nourishing. And if you think about all that, and then you look at our digestive tracts, you'll realize, and it's very humbling to think about it this way, um, we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. And in fact, even though humans are omnivores, we are not omnivores by design. God or a greater being or whatever didn't design us to eat literally almost all the foods that we eat. A cow is perfectly designed to eat grass and tough vegetable materials. A granivorous bird like a duck or a goose is perfectly designed to eat grains right off the stalk. Um, uh, you know, a lion or another predator is designed to take down animals on the African savanna, rip them apart with canines and fully digest raw red meat, um, you know, right away. We're not designed to do any of those things, but we have grains in our diets. We have uh, tough vegetable materials in our diets. We have meat in our diets. So how do we do this? And the key for humans is that we started out eating our digestive tracts three and a half million years ago because we're one of the only species that does something to its food before we put it into our mouths. And that's not just this weird thing. And, you know, the fact that we go out to restaurants and have chefs, it's actually something we require. We need to do something to almost all of the food that we eat. We have to process it in some way to make it as safe, nutrient dense and bioavailable as possible before we even eat it. And that's where all those technologies come in. So I just wanted to sort of clarify that food processing thing. Unfortunately, we should have different words like food processing in the past should be a different term than food processing today because one is amazing and one is horrible. Yeah, for real. And not to mention all of these foods that we are eating before processing are full of different things that are not necessarily designed to lead to good human life, right? 
So I think of vegetables as the classic example of this. Vegetables are commonly sought after because they are very nutrient dense foods. But, you know, I took bio 111, like most people who get a degree uh, in exercise science or physical therapy or any kind of health science. And they teach you about plants and all these different plant hormones and defense mechanisms that exist, but they never really tell you about how they turn them off and turn them back on, right? So if we don't know how to turn off these plant defense mechanisms and we are putting them in our body, then logically speaking, from my standpoint, it would make sense that those defense mechanisms are active when we put them in our body. And the processing that we do for plants in modern society is, if anything, further advancing that defense mechanism from the plant standpoint and further hindering our human health and performance. Uh, because we look at the things that we're doing now from, again, an agricultural perspective, right? So many states use biosolids to fertilize their um, crops. And you look at what biosolids are and where they come from, and it's like, okay, we're literally taking waste from sewage treatment plants and putting, putting it on plants as a fertilizer. Like something just seems amiss there to me. Um, and we, we don't ask the right questions when it comes to a scientific and research standpoint, right? We're not looking into what these defense mechanisms are doing to the human body. We're not looking at what the whole like human processing, the things that we need to do to make the growth of these crops more efficient and effective. We're not looking at the impact that has on the human health. We're just focused on, as you said before, the bottom dollar and the profit margin. Yeah, and you know, I really like uh, the way you, the way you said all that. And on top of the, the 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 concern we should have for the plant defense mechanisms, which are so important for us to understand, um, and I think are really contributing to a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today, especially middle age issues that we've sort of normalized joint pain and feeling like hell and, uh, you know, inflammation and all these other sorts of things that come along from it. But on top of that, I think everyone also has to realize that even though plants have nutrition in them, and in some cases have amazing nutrition in them, that nutrition does not get to where it needs to be just in most cases, just by eating that vegetable, especially in a raw state right? You know, those, those nutrients are so locked up in incredibly difficult to penetrate cell walls and all sorts. And sometimes they're, they're actually in a state that our bodies can't use them. That if we, if, you know, we fool ourselves into thinking, I'm going to eat this raw vegetable. It has this many grams of this, this many grams of this, this many grams of this, I'm going to eat it. And all those nutrients are going to go where they need to be in my body magically. And it's not going to happen. The only thing you can ensure is that you're going to eat that and it's going to come out the other end. So processing of plants, certain plants is crucial in order to make them safe, but also to get those nutrients accessible and in a state that our bodies can actually do something with them. Right, right. And that's a key point too, is everything you put in your, in your body is going to have some kind of effect physiologically. So I like to say that it's best to think of food the way we think of pharmacology, because so many people are familiar with pharmaceuticals in modern time. That's just mm -hmm. the nature of the world we live in. So if we think about food in terms of dosages, so how much of it are you going to eat? A therapeutic window. So you have to eat a certain amount of it in order to get an effect. But if you eat too much, you start to get detrimental effects. If we start to look at food like we do drugs, imagine what we could kind of get to from a overall like food science standpoint and the health discoveries that we can make 
Uh, I'm a little bit familiar with Dr. William Lee's work up at Harvard, and he started on this process, but he's, you know, just one guy working on it. It's not enough. Uh, and he's found some incredible results with green tea, dark chocolate, and um, fermented soy. Uh, key there was fermented. And uh, there's, certain, there's only certain kinds of dark chocolate that they found beneficial, right? Certain level of cacao, certain type of processing. Like, it's not like, you know, you go to the store and you pick up the Hershey's cocoa and you're good to go here. Um, but they found a lot of amazing results as it relates to angiogenesis formation with tumor cells. And they're finding that food can be used to slow down the growth of tumors if you eat appropriately. But again, if we don't look at the uh, underlying mechanisms at play here and consider things like the dosage that goes into the food, then we're never going to make those discoveries. We're always going to be reliant on a pharmaceutical system to uh, address those issues. When in reality, we could take a more primary preventative approach if we start eating correctly. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. And then we leave less the pharmaceuticals anyhow, right? Yeah. And uh, again, that's a whole nother industry. Uh, we, we won't go down that rabbit hole today, but they are very focused on the bottom dollar as well. Uh, so that's something that, you know, just keep in mind next time you go to your doctor and they prescribe, you know, pharmaceutical medications without any kind of lifestyle remedy. Right. So I fell yeah. victim to that a few weeks ago. Actually, I was prescribed. I tested positive for Lyme disease and I was hmm. given antibiotics to treat that even though I didn't have symptoms and I was, I, I am taking the antibiotics uh, just to prevent like long-term infection, chronic development, but I was also given Tylenol. I was given uh, anti-nausea pills to help with the side effects of the antibiotic. And I was given like three or four different medications. And I'm like, I, I only need one to treat the infection, but you're given so much more to help offset all these other side effects. And it just, to me, it would make more sense to handle things from a lifestyle uh, perspective. So thinking about Lyme disease, it's a disease that's very commonly linked with systemic inflammation. So if we reduce intake of things like gluten or sugar, things that exacerbate systemic inflammation, then I'm probably going to feel a lot better regardless of if I have Lyme or obesity or cardiovascular disease or whatever. Uh, and I attribute my own diet to why I didn't have symptoms from Lyme, right? I didn't know I had it. It was just a test and it came back positive. I didn't know I had COVID either when I had that. But if you keep yourself healthy, keep your systemic inflammation down and kind of consider the, fuel, the food that you put into your body as fuel and you only put in the best fuel into your body, right? Your body's like a race car. You don't run it on low octane stuff. You run it on the best possible stuff then you'd be amazed at the stuff that you can just starve off and stay away from. 100%. And I'll also add the, it, you know, I, I started saying a few years ago, it's not just what you eat, it's, it's how you eat. And what I mean is not necessarily the, the, the eating, you know, the windows of when you should be eating different foods with different nutrients and all that, which, which certainly can be uh, an important conversation as well, but the state of the food itself. <clears throat> so, um, we are very concerned as, as a modern population with what we eat. In fact, almost every conversation about food, uh, you know, gets distilled down to how many, how much fat we should have, how much carbohydrate should we have gluten? Should we have sugar? Those sorts of things. And they're important conversations. Don't get me wrong, but we're the only species on the planet that hires other people to tell us how to eat. Right. And, and 
all the other species on the planet, all the other wild species on the planet do a very good job. They eat diets that they are designed to eat and they, through evolutionary processes, have the right reactions to the foods that they put into their body. So they figure it out on their own, right? They, they don't need any help. The only other, you know, the only other species as sick as us that uh, because of the food that they eat are our pets and our domesticated animals. And that's because we're screwing them up as much as we're screwing ourselves up. So what is it with humans? Why is it different? Well, I am convinced that humans have all the necessary tools in their own mental and physiological toolkit to help decide when to eat, when not to eat, when to start eating, how much, to, how much they should consume, all of those things. Um, but they need to be in tune with their bodies and they need to be confronted with real meaningful nourishing food. And then that, that, that process can happen. But we've screwed all that up and we can talk about that in a second. But here's the other weird thing about humans. We are not designed to eat almost every food that we eat. So where does that leave us? The, the how part is incredibly important. The how part is the stuff that was passed on from generation to generation, tribal elder, grandmothers, grandparents to kids, is that's the cooking part, right? And I don't mean cooking that necessarily has to be in an oven all the time. I mean the processing of food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible, whether it's fermenting vegetables or um, using an animal nose to tail or nishtamalizing maize or you know whatever it happens to be that's the part that's essential in our in our modern human diets and is the part that's left out of all of these conversations if we come at it from the perspective that we are you know the only food that i'm convinced that humans are perfectly designed to consume is dairy when we're infants that's it i mean we are perfectly designed to eat raw milk from our mothers when we are infants. And then when we start introducing solid foods, we stop producing a lot of the enzymes we need to do that properly. So here we are as, as you know, inhabiting these bodies that require incredible nutrition to fuel these massively large brains and these actually relatively large bodies with this inefficient digestive tract. So what do we do? We have to do something to our food. And the problem is, and, and we, in that last um, thing that you just said, you even mentioned something like gluten. We distill down our, we, we dumb down our conversations about food to things like, oh, should we eat gluten? Should we have animal fat? You know, should we, should we um, eat this? Should we eat dairy? Should we eat grain? Should we eat all this? And the problem is none of those conversations go deep enough because I'll tell you, should, are humans designed to eat gluten? Absolutely not. Can we do something to that gluten to make it safer and more nourishing? 100%, you know, and, and then here we are left with, um, you know, having this kind of meaningless conversation, but at the same time, there's, you know, long wild fermented sourdough bread over here and wonder bread on this side, and they're completely different foods. We could say the same thing about dairy. Should anybody in my mind be drinking ultra pasteurized skim milk? Absolutely not. But could you make a case, and I, and I easily could, that a, you know, high quality A2 raw milk that's been fermented into something like a creme fraiche or a yogurt or kefir or a real traditional cheese be part of a healthy human diet? Absolutely. They're both dairy, but they're two completely different foods. And that's where I think we need to really start to turn our conversations to. No, I completely agree with you. And that is an amazing point because you're right. We do get lost talking about um, kind of using the rocks and sand in a jar analogy we will argue left and right about sand as humans, right? We don't ever look at the big rocks first. So we'll get lost in a battle of should people, as you said, 
Should they eat gluten or not? Should they eat dairy or not? Should we be eating this, that, or the other thing? And in reality, we don't take a step and one, look at the bigger picture. And then two, we never dive in further. We just kind of stay at that level that we uh, argue on. So I completely agree with that point that you've made. Uh, and I also like your focus on, it kind of seems like you want people to rewild themselves for lack of a better way to put it is, you know, we are living in a society that, as we've said earlier, it's a complete mismatch to where we came from evolutionarily, but we almost need to match our eating approach to more like that of our ancestors. So eating more like a human. Um, I, I can't imagine where I would have got that uh, phrase from, right? <laughs> yeah, eating, eating, eating more like a human and diets that actually built us. And again, rewild is, is such a great word too. You know, if let's say something about domestication very quickly. So, uh, you know, as, as an archeologist, a lot of times, you know, I would get the questions asked, you know, what domestication was so significant in transforming our relationship with our environments and our food and our diet and our health. I'm not saying a good or a bad way. In fact, I think in a bad way, but um, you know, what happened with, when we started domesticating plants, we started domesticating animals completely transformed everything about our lives and our health and the health of the planet. So everybody wants to nail down these dates. Like when did it first happen? When did we first domesticate plants? When did we first domesticate animals? And if you think about what the term domestication really means, I mean, we, we throw it around all the time, but in order, let's put a definition to it. In my mind, it's taking a wild species. And, and I don't know if everybody realizes, but literally every single domesticated plant or animal we have from a carrot to a horse to a cow all started as a wild organism that and here's the definition plate we took and put in a cultural environment in other words a, a human created environment where we were doing something to it we were either keeping it safe or feeding it or um, helping it breed in certain ways for different kind of traits that we wanted or giving it water or all sorts of different things but when it's in that cultural environment um, over time it genetically changes to something else and that's the domestication piece. And in some cases, it genetically changes to the point where it can no longer survive in the wild on its own. Okay, so if that's our definition of domestication, the first domesticated plant we think is somewhere between 10 and 15,000 years ago. And a lot of different plants are vying for this, but it could be maize. Um, it could be some sort of ancient wheat. It could be um, uh, potatoes even, but that's in the plant world. In the animal world, um, most people would say the first domesticated animal was a dog at about 35,000 years ago or so. Um, and after that, most uh, animals start to get domesticated uh, within the past 10,000 years, things like cows and horses and that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> okay, so to me, that doesn't describe at all. There's an earlier animal. The earliest domestication event for an animal was us at three and a half million years ago. Because if you think about it, and it sounds so simple and silly, but it's real. When our ancestors created our first stone tool 3.3 million years ago and used it to access meat on the African savanna for the first time, we all of a sudden put ourselves literally in a human created environment. We were creating technologies to overcome our own, limit, our own limitations. We were no longer wild. We were in a human created environment, taking in foods that we had absolutely no biological business eating. And it turns out that those foods were so amazingly nourishing that it changed us. And it, our brains got bigger, our bodies got bigger, and we started out eating our 
own digestive tracts, our, our nutritional needs skyrocketed to the point where if we took any of us, and I, and I say it all the time, I don't care if it's Bear Grylls or the best survival expert in the world, and threw you naked in the middle of the woods, anywhere on the planet, you would die because we don't have the ability with these inefficient nails and these inefficient teeth and our inefficient digestive tracts to access enough nutrients from our environment, I don't care where you live, to fully nourish these modern or, or nourish the bodies that we're in now. This is an incredibly important thing for us, <clears throat> excuse me, to understand. So yes, rewilding sort of, you know, going back the way things were, but we are no longer wild animals and we have nutritional needs that require us to do massive things to our food. And I, I'd like, you know, if everybody took a step back and really thought about what we as modern humans try to do when we think about nourishing ourselves and the difference to what it was in the past, I think it's incredibly important, uh, incredibly different. Most modern Americans and modern people in the Western world <clears throat> want to eat all day and not get fat. I mean, it's really what we want to do. I mean, you, you even said you were watching the game last night. I mean, how many people were watching a football game last night and literally just sat there and were munching on chips and trying to drink beer, but, you know, they're looking at the chips and they're saying, okay, well, how much fat and how much carbohydrates are in there? And, you know, they're drinking the light beer because they, but, but they want to eat all the time. And then, so we're, we're seeking out nutrient free food for the first time in the history of our species. And then we're paying somebody to go there and work out at a gym to try to burn off more calories so that we can then go eat more food. And now, now listen, food is a, a an important part emotionally and culturally in our lives. And truly being nourished requires us to meet not only our biological needs for food, but also our cultural and emotional ones. And I completely understand that. But let's take a, a step back and understand what that really means. We are literally seeking out nutrient-free foods, but our ancestors, and for millions of years, were trying to create technologies that allowed them to get the most amazing nutrient-dense foods from our environment and do things to those foods to unlock those nutrients so that our bodies had to work less hard to access them. That is a completely different way of thinking about it. It's almost like that, uh, that saying, you know, you shouldn't work out to eat, you should eat to work out. You should eat so that you're as nourished as possible. So any way that you're working out is as, as meaningful as it can be. You shouldn't be going to the gym thinking, oh my God, if I sit on this treadmill for another half an hour, I can have an extra slice of pizza or an extra chocolate chip cookie. That is a silly way of thinking about food and diet and health. And it has never been that way for millions, literally millions and millions of years. You're absolutely right. And not even to mention that it's just what I would consider a immature way of looking at how we eat we look at things as carbs fats and proteins and we look at things as calories that's how we as a society think we think in terms of calories but at the end of the day calorie is a unit of heat measurement it's the amount of energy that's required to raise a small quantity of water one degree celsius so yep. why are we measuring food in terms of heat temperature and not by the ability to provide energy, right? Because our body uh, functions as far as energy is concerned in terms of ATP and calories are not always the best measure of ATP. Uh, it's just a little bit of a mismatch there. And we think that restricting calories or matching our calorie burn every day to what we put in is the end of the battle. And we never consider, as you said before, we never look deeper. We never look at the physiological effect that that food has on our body. So I know a lot of people will reference, you know, oh, so-and-so, uh, you know, in the news, they lost, you know, 
they lost 20 pounds doing a diet of nothing but Twinkies or, you know, this guy ate McDonald's every day for a month, but he lost weight, you know, so it's possible to eat these foods and still be, you know, healthier, quote unquote. But in reality, weight loss does not necessarily mean healthy. I want to see the body composition, right? If someone's eating nothing but Twinkies every day for, you know, who knows how long, they're not going to be building muscle. If anything, that weight loss was muscle loss because they're not putting in protein to their body. They're not putting in the essential amino acids that their body needs to function at a high level. Not to mention all of that sugar and processed junk is going to just absolutely annihilate your body's insulin system. So you're probably going to develop Mm -hmm. insulin resistance. You're probably going to develop some other risk factors for heart disease in the process. You're probably not going to look different or feel different for that matter, but Hey, you lost weight. Good for you. Congrats. Um, so it's just kind of, again, reframing how we think about, uh, food in general and thinking more like what it means to eat like a human, uh, than what we think of as modern society and modern food, because as you said, we are not a species that should be asking, you know, what should I be eating? We should instead just be, you know, instinctive in what we eat and what we know will nourish ourselves. Right. And in order to do that, right, a couple of things have to happen. One is you have to be in tune with your body, what, 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 what it feels like. And I, I, you know, this is how I like to, like to um, uh, reference it. There's three things in human life that are truly sensual experiences. When I say sensual, I mean, literally all of your senses are operating at the same time when you're experiencing this. In fact, often operating at a, in a heightened sense. One is safety, one is sex, and one is food and, and eating. And, and these are not, it's not um, a coincidence, right? These, these are evolutionary, you know, uh, reactions. These things have been built over millions of years of evolution in order for us to do the very one thing that every species on this planet must do to survive, reproduce viable offspring. Right. And in order to do that, number one, you have to reproduce. Number two, it has to be successful that that the the offspring, you have to be able to give birth to healthy offspring. And that offspring has to live long enough to be viable and produce viable offspring, too. And if you do all this, then your species survives. And if you screw it up, you, you become extinct. So. Every species on the planet has to do this. So if you think about it, when when what what does it feel like when you're sleeping at night and something fell in the kitchen downstairs and made a sound and you, you jump out of bed and literally you feel like you're a superhuman. You can hear and you can a- a- operate at a level that you've never you know been able to operate before because you have these heightened senses of the safety. When you're engaged in the act of sex, if you do it right, it feels incredibly good. If you do it wrong, it feels incredibly bad. And it's the same thing with eating. There is a reason why food gives us such intense pleasure when we do it right. And there's another reason why it feels so terribly bad if we do it wrong, if we're hungry or if we overeat or if we have gas or acid, whatever it is. You know, it is not a coincidence. So if we're in tune with our bodies and we are literally faced and confronted with real meaningful food, we literally, I do believe, can make, we're all armed with the right decisions to make these decisions by ourselves. Uh, but what's crazy is we spend a lifetime 
screwing up our innate senses for food. I mean, just think about how crazy this is when, you know, I have, I have three kids, they're 18, 16, and 14 now. And anybody who has kids can, can remember or experiencing right now, when you start weaning them off of milk and start giving them solid foods, you know, you're sitting and organism i mean we're the only species that does this we, we we sit our our kids in a high chair and they're starving they're so hungry they're crying and screaming and throwing a tantrum and we put food in front of them now we put food in front of them and we force them to eat things that they're screaming about trying to put down into their bodies i mean how insane is it i mean how many you know these are kids you know infants that haven't been screwed up by modern advertising by 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 all the sorts of things they innately understand their bodies have you know these these built-in evolutionary responses to food and here we are trying to force down you know this jarred broccoli that it, their, their body or spinach for god's sakes full of oxalates that their body is you know Every part of their body is resisting and we're literally forcing it down their throats. You know, I have talked, I wish I knew then what I know now, but thankfully I have, um, you know, we work with a lot of people in, in help nourishing the community and, and, and raise awareness about these things. I have so many people that are, you know, just had babies and you know, just are, are, are weaning them off of breast milk and are feeding them things like pate, you know, liver pate. And these kids are gobbling it up or giving them things like bone broth. And there's no resistance whatsoever. I mean, I don't understand how we're ignoring these signals so hard, but what we're doing by forcing these kids to eat foods that their body is completely rejecting is we're teaching them not to listen to their bodies. We're teaching them to listen to advertising and other people telling us how to eat. And I, I really think that's where it all starts right there. But anyhow, real quick to, to put a button on this. So one of the best things that we can do if we're really trying to get healthy is to eat, and I know this sounds so so silly, but it in the modern world is so difficult to achieve. We should eat a nourishing meal. Like literally, sit down and eat the most nourishing meal possible. Do everything you can to source the most amazing, you know, grass-fed beef. Cook it properly. Right kind of vegetables. Prepare whatever it is. Sit down, eat that meal, and then see how you feel afterwards. And that should be your benchmark. And then from that point forward, you should strive that every, and this sounds so incredibly simple, but it's not in the modern world, strive that every time that you sit down and eat and then eat and then get up, you feel better than when you sat down, right? If, if, if you feel better than after you get done eating and when you sat down to eat, which should be the goal, you will improve your health so in such amazing ways it is it is literally you know it, it is literally that simple and that difficult at the same time yeah yeah for real and there's so many other pieces that go along with that right you can start a journal to just start tracking how you feel after you eat certain foods so you might respond differently to certain things than other foods like i know for myself that if i go with a low carb keto approach i feel great you might need to eat more carbohydrates than i do in order to feel the same way so if you're tracking, you know, writing down your mood and how you're feeling, energy levels, that sort of thing, after you eat and you start noticing a trend like, hey, on days that I eat less carbs, I feel more irritable, then add something clean back in, right? It's easy to, well, I, I, it's, it's going back into your thing about how it's easy, but it's difficult. 
Um, but you can find clean carbohydrate sources and add them into your diet, right? Even organic fruits or wild, wild berries are available at most grocery stores. Um, I get wild blueberries, organic wild blueberries from Trader Joe's, and it's $3 a bag for frozen ones. So it's not perfect by any means. I'd much rather have something fresh from a farmer's market, but comparing it to regular blueberries that most people eat, yeah, it's a lot better. Um, so start tracking how you feel in response to things and really eat with purpose and intention and focus on the food that's in front of you. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, create your plate of nutrient dense foods and then get your phone out and, you know, sit there and type away for 20, 30 minutes because you want to actually focus on what you're eating. Like mm -hmm. your eyes see it, your brain perceives it, and then your body feels it. And if you're distracting yourself with other things, then you're not going to get the full effect of the food. And that's one of the things that actually leads to the overeating that you talked about earlier is we distract ourselves and we never actually know how much we ate. That's a really, really, really good point. And I would also say that, that journal is such a great idea too, because the effects of that reach beyond a half hour after you eat. In other words, like if you eat, if you eat this X for dinner and then the next day you get home and you're taking off your socks and you realize you're leaving an indent in your legs because they're swollen, you know, you can start to, to there's some kind of inflammation. You can, you can start to piece together. Okay. Maybe there was something that happened the day before that my body, you know, seriously reacted to the next day or overnight or whatever it is. Unfortunately, um, I think people do need to realize that some of the effects of food, and we do understand this, but some of the effects of, of foods and the way that we eat them and the lack of processing and all this, lack of the right kind of processing, can uh, build up and lead to problems months or even years or sometimes decades later. And we, we understand this certainly with things like insulin resistance and, and, and the like, but I, I would even, and I know it's finally, finally becoming a hot topic. Um, in the ancestral diet community, but uh, the term oxalates, you know, these, these, these plant toxins that are actually incredibly difficult to remove. You know, there's so many plant toxins we can, uh, the, we can deal with through things like fermentation and, and uh, cooking in certain ways and processing in certain ways, but oxalates seem to be one of them that uh, is difficult to truly mitigate the dangers of the oxalates. And one of the problems with oxalates is that you don't, you, unless you have a huge problem with oxalates and already had, have an oxalate toxicity level in your body, you normally don't see the effects of it the next day or the next month. There's something that hits you when you're 30 or 40 or 50 years old. And unfortunately, in the modern world, we have so it's, it's happening to so many people that we've normalized joint pain. You know, it, 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 when we start to become middle aged and, and we normalize um, um, uh, swelling and, and inflammation and we normalize kind of not feeling the same way that we did in our 20s. Listen, wild animals live amazing lives and then keel over dead. I mean, that's that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the way that I want to live. If you're getting up every morning and your feet hurt when you get out of bed, or you're going up upstairs and your knees are cracking for the first time, and you're like, oh, it's just what it is 45 years old. And that's how I'm supposed to feel. No, it's not. Something is wrong, and probably the answer to, to, to it is it can be found in your diet. And the cool thing is, if you're 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever years old, and this is the way that you're starting to feel, a lot of it is reversible, and a lot of it's rever reversible because, you know, through, through dietary changes. So we haven't lost hope, but don't normalize pain. Don't normalize not feeling well, because it's not the way our body is supposed to operate.
I completely agree with you, Bill. Uh, I like to give the example of my grandfather. He's 78 years old, uh, just turned 79. He has 10% body fat at hmm. 79. So naturally, when he's outside in the summer and, you know, the Arizona sun at the pool, a lot of people, they turn heads because they're like, wait a second, you, you're older, but like you're lean and you're built. And, you know, it is possible. And people often, as you said, we normalize aging, so to speak, but we don't have to age as we think of aging. There's 80 year olds, 90 year olds running marathons. We don't have to be 80, you know, 90 years old confined to a nursing home. I've even seen 40 year olds getting joint replacements. I've seen 50 year olds confined to a nursing home. And it's just sad. You know, again, as a society, we have to ask ourselves, is this really the direction that we want to keep going down? And that's where, you know, we have to be thankful and appreciate people like you who are trying to stop the madness for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, and I know that you've got the book and I know you've just launched a uh, online course that really helps people dive into this deeper and understand what it means to eat like a human. So could you share a little bit about both of those? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, right now we we released a book called uh, Eat Like a Human uh, and Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. And that book, I'm so proud of this book. It was, it was spent over 10 years writing this book. It released uh, in November um, in the US and a few other countries and then all over Europe and, and, and um, elsewhere uh, a few weeks ago. And this book is, you know, I'm so proud of because the first part of this book sets, lays that foundation that, you know, in, in a really simple to understand, but important way of, of what our ancestral diets were like, what that diet was like that built us as humans. And then we spend the rest of the book um, breaking it down into different food categories, whether it be animals or plants or grains or maize or dairy, and really diving deep into, okay, what, what do these food categories really mean? What were they like in our ancestral diets? And most importantly, and this is the part that I'm most proud of, how can we take this information and make it relevant and meaningful to our modern Western lives? And there's over 75 recipes in the book, and there's real a whole bunch of amazing tips and, and techniques, these takeaways for how do we take this information that seems could seem so distant, you know, it's what happened a million years ago or 100,000 years ago, or in a cave in Spain, and make that information relevant in my own kitchen in the middle of somewhere like Manhattan. Um, and and I, I think we do a very, we've gotten really good feedback from the book book. Um, this book is the result of me and my wife trying to figure out how to feed our family over the past 18 years. Um, and that was sort of the focus of it. We've received such great feedback that we just launched a 10-week class. Um, it started a couple days ago, but uh, if anybody's interested in it, you can find information on our websites, uh, both eatlikeahuman.com and themodernstoneagekitchen.com. And uh, there, we can, that, that first class, we can, we can easily get to you. Uh, so don't be afraid if, if you've missed the first one. But what we do is we take each week and go chapter by chapter through the book. Uh, I tell behind the scenes stories. Um, this book is a great uh, literally journey through time and around the world. We meet some incredible people. So I'm bringing a bunch of those people back to interact with us on Zooms. And then I do a uh, I, I do cooking demos at the end of each one of these classes. So if you're interested in truly making that change in your own home and nourishing your family in the most important way, these are some resources that can help you take those first steps. Yeah, definitely. And I'll say that your book is not only comprehensive, but compared to other ones that cover the material that yours covers, it's pretty cheap in comparison. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen books selling like $60, $70 that cover the exact same stuff. And yours is like 20. 
So it's definitely a worthwhile investment. And even your classes, right? Like you have multiple options. You can tune in virtually and live. Uh, you can get recordings and transcripts of each one, or you can work with you one-on-one, -on -one, I believe, independently. And I think that yep, includes the, the book with it too. Um, so you can really kind of tier it to what you uh, feel that you need. Uh, and, you know, it provides something for everyone. But again, the information that you're sharing at the price you're sharing it at, it really can't be beat in comparison. So uh, I think that's something that needs to be mentioned to people too, is, you know, a lot of people look at something and they often uh, try to assess the price, right? Like, you mm -hmm. know, what is this going to do for me? Is this worth my money? And this is the kind of thing that's really an investment in your personal health and well-being. Uh, like we were talking about before, you're teaching yourself, you're teaching yourself skills to improve your overall quality of life. Would you rather learn it and do it yourself and prevent a whole, you know, downward spiral of different diseases and problems? Or would you rather pay the same amount of money and give up, you know, the same amount of time or more? To go see your doctor and pay insurance co-pays and that sort of thing. The money and the time is going to be spent one way or the other. Would you rather be it, uh, rather spend it on a preventative approach or a approach that's more reactive and you know might find things too little, too late for you? Such great points. And I'll also say this: you know, our my, my wife and I, our mission is to educate and empower people to take their own steps to nourish their family in the most amazing way possible. And I, it is our goal that everybody, you know, every, we would love everybody to learn how to do these things themselves and actually implement them into their house. Um, we, I do understand that for a lot of people, actually making all of their food entirely from scratch is just not possible for a number of different reasons, right? They don't have the time or, um, you know, they, they maybe they don't even want to. But the cool thing about this approach and understanding how the food is actually made is that if you want to go ahead and make all the rest of the food from scratch for the rest of your life, great. But if you don't, you are at least the most informed consumer that you can be. You can walk into the grocery store after learning how food, real food is actually made as an entirely different person, right? You can see through the marketing and the advertising and all the junk that the modern food industry is literally trying to feed you. And you can take your money, your hard earned money, and buy the food that's been processed or created in the most you know, nourishing, ethical, and sustainable ways possible. And it's a win-win because not only are you feeding your family the best food, but you're also supporting the people, the food producers that are actually doing the best job possible. You mean to tell me that there's propaganda out there in the food industry <laughs> and you know that oat milk isn't healthy, really? Yeah, <laughs> it's at least not as bad as almond milk. But. <laughs> For sure. Bill, yeah. thank you so much for your time. This has been an amazing episode talking about eating like a human. Uh, for more on Bill, you can check out his website at eatlikeahuman.com. And from there, you can find everything that we referenced, the book, the online course, and so much more. We'll link to that and his social media below. Uh, thank you as always for listening and we'll see you next week.